Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. In 2015, more than a million migrants and refugees crossed into Europe, most fleeing the war-torn region of Syria. The exodus is ongoing. Meanwhile, Donald Trump argues for a wall across the border of the US and Mexico, and closer to home, Australia operates one of the harshest border policies in the world. How porous should borders be? Do nations have the right to refuse sanctuary? Are refugees collateral damage as the search for strategic, long-term solutions to bloody conflict stumbles on? In this year's the University of Auckland Festival Forum, the border debate took centre stage with Israeli strategic consultant Yossi Alpha, writer, Medicine Sans Frontier doctor, humanitarian and diplomat John Christophe Ruffin, and British Middle East expert Emma Skye, who discussed the biggest humanitarian crisis since World War II and the question of borders with British philosopher Julian Bergini. We hope you enjoy this as much as we did. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming out. Amazing audience here tonight. And this is an important issue and one which is engaging lots of people. We've got a fantastic panel to talk about it. Unfortunately, Suad Armory can't be here. She was in the printed program. So if you saw the printed program, you might be expecting her due to unforeseen personal circumstances. But we have three incredible speakers here with a wide range of experience. To our immediate right is Yossi Alpha, a writer on Israeli strategic issues a former Mossad official and former director of the Center for Strategic Studies at Tel Aviv University. He also co-founded the online dialogue, uh, Israeli-Palestinian dialogue, Um, bitterlemons.com. All these people are taking part in other events, so do check out the program. Yossi is in conversation on Saturday, and he's the author of No End of Conflict, Rethinking Israel-Palestine and Periphery, Israel's Search for Middle East Allies. Um, Next to him is Emma Skye. She's a lecturer in Middle East politics at Yale University. Uh, She worked for a decade in Palestine in support of the Oslo peace process. Some of you may remember that. Um, She also worked for the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq and as a political advisor to the commander of US forces there. And she's the author of The Unraveling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. And you also got your event on... Sunday. Sunday. And to my to the far right is Jean-Christophe Ruffin. He's the co-founder of Médecins Sans Frontières, um, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1999. And if you look at the recent history of Nobel Peace Prize winners, it's in that category of people who genuinely really did deserve it. Um, <laughs> so we've... <laughs> uh, Man of many talents, doctor, historian, former ambassador at Senegal, which you may, I was interested to discover was France's largest embassy in Africa. And his most recent book, something very different, is on, it's called The Santiago Pilgrimage, and he's again taking part in an event on Sunday. So we're here talking about borders and good, bad problems with them and so forth. It's a huge issue, it, it seems to dominate conversation. Obviously, there's a refugee crisis going on, a global refugee crisis, but it's not just that. I was struck this morning, I was looking at the New Zealand Herald and the the top story, who's buying our homes, right? Um, It seems that it's widely believed in New Zealand that the reason why property is so expensive, particularly in Auckland, 
is because all these foreigners coming in and buying them. And this, using the Herald reports today, this is actually a myth that the number of foreign buyers is quite small. But the very fact that that is a story at all tells you something about the kind of anxiety that seems to be in the world at the moment. The very idea of people crossing borders, entering our countries, has become deeply problematic. So we're here to try and discuss some of those issues. Now, of course, everybody here on the panel has got expertise in particular areas of the world. And we'd like to hear about what those particular um, examples can tell us about the debate. At the same time, though, we also want to explore more generally. We want to sort of like get to some of the underlying issues that might be occurring irrespective of particular circumstances. Um, so to begin, I actually just want to start by dealing with, if you like, the, the simple solution. Some people have very simple solutions to the issue of borders, and there are two options, basically. Uh, the first simple option is open borders, and this is something which a lot of people seriously advocate. The whole idea of borders between nation states is unjust, unfair, and outdated, and if you actually want a solution to this problem, the answer is get rid of them, open borders. And so what I want to start by asking, and anyone who wants to take it up first, what, if anything, is wrong with that? Or would one of you like to speak up for it? Yossi. <laughs> well, would, would New Zealanders open, of course you don't have borders with any other country, <laughs> but so it's easy for you, I suppose, to speak of open borders. Uh, Israel borders on a number of Arab countries, including Syria, uh, which has a, virtually half its population, some 12 million people are now refugees, uh, flooding to the surrounding countries. Uh, we're already crowded. Uh, we define ourselves as a, the homeland of the Jewish people uh, and have rather stringent regulations as to who can come in and who can't come in. Uh, so do our neighbors, by the way. Uh, so the whole concept is alien to us. But having said that, you look north to Syria, and you see its entire population flooding into Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, open borders. It's impossible, virtually impossible to close them. Uh, but this is causing more problems than it's solving, because these people at some point are going to be asked to go home and they have no homes to go back to. Uh, so I would say open borders is a totally foreign concept in our part of the world, in the Middle East, uh, in terms of uh, the legalities, but in terms of what's actually happening, this huge human tragedy in Syria, uh, it is characterized by open borders, mm. tragically open borders. Does that help you define the issue? It, it, everything is helping, certainly. Um, Jean-Christophe, <coughs> I mean, your organization is Médecins Sans Frontières, is part of the title of the organization is this ideal of borders, but would you go so far as to suggest that borders should be abolished completely, or only for Médecins? <laughs> now, for, first of all, I should say that I'm, I don't express myself in the name of this organization. I'm not taking part of it uh, any longer, and uh, I had other responsibility, and I'm here personally. So, um, Now, the concept of open borders uh, should be... Uh, is very dangerous, because, uh, of course, in certain cases, and that's why we named this organization Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Border, 
in some cases you have a moral duty to cross a border to rescue someone who is in danger and that was in that sense that we have used it, this word. It didn't mean that uh, on the opposite you, you can open the border to say to someone uh, to come. Uh, it's, it's completely different. The refugee history, uh, I must refer a little bit to, to history for, to understand things. Uh, the, the status of refugee has been created in uh, 1951. Uh, there is a convention signed in Geneva in 1951, uh, which was dedicated to the, the huge amount of population who were uh, moving in Europe after the Second World War, because after the Second World War, many borders had changed, um, especially between Germany and Poland and the East and everywhere. Uh, and there, was, there were uh, huge movements of population. So the United Nations have created this uh, concept of refugee uh, with this particular convention. It was created uh, with the High Commissioner to deal with, with this problem of refugee. And which is interesting is that in 1951, the High Commissioner of Refugee was created for three years. Because at that time, people were thinking that within three years, the problem of refugee will be solved, you know, and we are 60, more than 60 years after, and it's still here. So what I want to say is that this concept of refugee, uh, on which the international community has agreed at that time, was very precise. Uh, they didn't say at that time, and they could, it was in, within Europe, you know, it was easy to say open the borders, but they didn't say that. They said, we must differentiate the individual status of the people. And we must differentiate between someone who wants to move and someone who is really persecuted for his opinions, his faith, his religion, his, his origins, and so on and so forth. And the concept of refugee was created precisely uh, to give an alternative to the, enfin, a, a third solution to, to the alternative that you mentioned, open or close. Uh, it gives the possibility to open for someone who needs that at an individual point of view because he is prosecuted, he has a real danger to stay where he is, prosecuted by the authority of the country where he is, and then he can be accepted through a border in any place as a refugee. Otherwise, uh, the borders still exist. And I think it's very important, and maybe in the debate we will have to talk about that, it is very important to, uh, to, to, to understand that uh, you cannot do anything with the concept of nation. I mean, especially in Europe, you know, it's very dangerous to say, um, just open, because just open, and we'll talk about that probably later, uh, it has consequences in terms of policy, and I don't think that you, you, you have probably mentioned the increase of the extreme right movements, um, uh, policy in our countries, which is, to my eyes, the direct consequences of this turmoil of, of, of population in the moment. Okay. So, I mean, I mean, Emma, I mean, we haven't heard anyone speaking in favor of completely open borders, and maybe you would, but if not, can you, can you at least give us some sense of what behind that motivation is, is good, do you think? Because, or maybe, if there is something good about it, because it seems, it seems to me anyway, the ideal 
of just simply abolishing borders has something quite attractive about it, doesn't it? Well, the group that is the most vociferous about abolishing borders is the Islamic State. <laughs> <laughs> and they're the ones who, back in, I think it was 2014, said they were eradicating the border between Syria and Iraq. And you saw them sort of bulldozing a border and saying, end of Sykes-Pico. And when you look at the Middle East, it's common for people to say that the borders in the Middle East are artificial. They were artificially created at the end of the Ottoman Empire. But you could argue that all nation states at one level are also artificial. It's not just the Middle East. And despite the way in which those borders were drawn up, those borders have been very resilient. And national identities were created through education, through military, within those borders. And when you look at all the fighting going on in the Middle East, it's mostly people competing for power within those borders. The only group that I can think of that talks about eradicating borders is the Islamic State. And for them, you know, they talk about a caliphate. So a borderless Muslim world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's very interesting you raised that point, because that's not what I have in mind when I think about it, because um, in, in Britain, I'm from Britain, and in, in Britain, the people advocating no borders tend to be extremely idealistic multiculturalists, right? So their idea is that actually, you know, it's just... Life is unfair. People are born where they're born, and some people are born in countries that are dysfunctional. Other people are lucky. They win the lottery, like me. They're born in Britain, or perhaps they even got an even larger winning ticket, and they brought up in New Zealand. Um, you know, but there's a fundamental injustice here, and the, the idealism behind open borders there is that everyone should be able to share in that. But your point suggests to me that, that the flip side of that is that you can only all share in something if there's a common understanding. So in that sense, open borders only works if there's a universal ideology. So it's actually monolithic in some way. You're, you're nodding your head, Jean Pizzo. Yeah, just to emphasize what you said, uh, not only in Middle East, but for instance in Africa, and we probably have to speak later about African uh, population movement because uh, the refugees going through Europe, actually it's not, uh, are not only coming from Middle East, but mostly. Uh, mostly. I think in the, in the future, in the next future, there will come more from, from Africa through Libya than from Middle East. But uh, Africa, it's the same. Um, you hear people saying that the African border are artificial because they have been drawn by the colonizer uh, just like this, um, you know, for, by, by chance or for rivalry of, of colonial powers. But after uh, more than 60 years of independence, I mean, these countries have created their own, their own conscience of identity. And if you say uh, to a Senegalese uh, that he is a Congolese, he won't accept that, you know. And just uh, participate to a football uh, play, you know, and then you will understand what it is. I mean, they are... And they have adopted and they have lived into their borders. And they are very, you know, they, they don't accept that people from abroad contempt the reality of their nation state, which maybe is not completely 
uh, completely developed, but um, which has a space and which has its limits. And when you look in Africa, where are the conflicts? It's exactly at the places, I'm not speaking about the, the fundamentalism uh, in Sahara, but b between African countries, the only conflicts are in the places where the border are not precisely defined. For instance, between Nigeria and Cameroon, there is uh, the Bakassi zone with petrol uh, under the sea, and the, the border is not clearly defined, and there is a conflict. Uh, because conflict is not only a fact of injustice or a fact of, of, of problems, but also it's a base of peace, and it's necessary for peace between the people. I mean, I, I, it's, it's very interesting that you're, you're talking about this because, again, I think that perhaps a sort of a liberal ideal is one of diversity. And, but traditionally, I think, you know, maybe I shouldn't be speaking for other places, but in Britain, um, a lot of people of a liberal mindset have been sort of anti-nationalism of any kind. Nationalism seems to be antithetical to this kind of liberal diversity. And yet what you're suggesting is really, in order to have diversity, you need to have um, borders. And, and I suppose this is obviously very pertinent to, to Israel, because the Israeli fear is presumably that without that defined border in the Israeli state, there there is nowhere in the world where one can be comfortably Jewish. Well, I think you can ask Jews in the diaspora. Well, there may yeah. be some here who feel per perfectly comfortable there, and not all of us in Israel are terribly comfortable today. But I wanted, I wanted to talk about actually about the European Union because I think it's the most instructive example of what's happening to the concept of open as opposed to closed borders in 2016. We see with the flood of refugees, mainly from Syria, but many from Africa as well, via Libya, uh, into Europe, we see the, to some extent the, the Schengen principle of open borders within most of the European Union being thrown out the window. And uh, <clears throat> the borders being reinstated in many ways. Uh, you, it's, it, it's harder to move freely within the European Union today than it was a year or two ago. And this is because of the fear of not Europeans moving about, but uh, Africans, uh, uh, Arabs, uh, 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 from people from as far afield as Afghanistan, uh, uh, wanting to uh, get, get a foothold in Europe and then be able to move about freely. So it seems to me the liberal concept of open borders is in regression today in the place where it really uh, witnessed its heyday in the last decade or so, and that's Western Europe. Yeah, well, maybe we'll talk more about that. But um, before we do that, let's, let's, so we've talked about the problems of just having completely open borders as the simple solution. Now, the other simple solution, I guess, isn't quite as simple because I don't think anyone would advocate completely closed borders, right? I mean, people still want the ability to travel as tourists and so forth. And presumably, people also want some ability to allow at least some skilled people in. So uh, let's make this sort of slightly less than purely simple solution is nonetheless the idea that, you know, borders should be as solid as is possible. You know, that really the, the solution to this problem is to be much, much tougher on border controls and to make it much more difficult for people to move from one country to another than we, we certainly have. Um, so again, you can just sum it up in saying, as a lot of people are saying in Europe, 
It's not that we we're against people moving, but the, the fundamental solution to the problem is it's got to be much, much more difficult um, to, to move country and to go and to live in another country as a full citizen. And we've basically got to make the borders much tougher. So what do you all make of that as a, a general direction of travel for policy in this area? I think it's Emma. important to differentiate between migrants and refugees. And I think what we've seen recently with this crisis in Europe is a refusal to use the term refugee because the term refugee comes with responsibilities from the 1951 convention. And mixing these terms, refusing to use the term refugee, has been a way in which these European countries are shirking their international responsibilities. In January, I went to Greece because I wanted to follow the footsteps of the refugees coming through. And I followed them from Greece through Macedonia, Serbia, Croatia. And I left them there as they went on their journey towards um, Germany, which was where they were all trying to go to. And you know, I got to speak to refugees all the way and to hear their stories. I mean, these were refugees who were fleeing from Syria. You look at Syria, 400,000 people have been killed there. Half the country is displaced. To find your way to, across the border into Turkey, to find a smuggler that will put you on a boat, to go with your babies onto a boat, to take that risk, shows that they are fleeing something really, really terrible. I mean, it is appalling. And they're fleeing the regime mostly. It's mostly Assad who has mass-murdered his people through these barrel bombings. And when you look at these people and you listen to their stories, also Iraqis fleeing, you think, how can we as an international community close our borders? And when I went through in January, I was, you know, like the refugees, able to follow this path. In the last month or so, refugees can no longer make that journey. The borders have come up. Refugees landing in Greece are now expelled back to Turkey. And that is a violation. And you think what they have been through just to get to Greece, and after all of that to be put, pushed back to Turkey, I think that is a shame on the international community. As I understand it, part of the problem is that not, uh, you, you began by distinguishing between migrants and refugees. And I assume you would acknowledge that not all of those trying to go from Turkey into Greece and from there into Europe would be qualified under international law as refugees. Some of them are, are labor migrants. Uh, and here's one of the biggest issues and the biggest difficulties in all the countries dealing with this flood of people trying to cross their borders who is a refugee and who is a labor migrant? Obviously, there's a natural tendency in the part of most of the countries, my own included. We're looking at people coming from Sudan and Eritrea, uh, trying to cross the border from Egypt into southern Israel. Who is a refugee? How do you define it? And who is a labor migrant? And of course, the responsibilities of the receiving country are vastly different, as I understand it in Europe as well. 
a sizable proportion are at least technically qualified as migrants and not as refugees. Uh, it's a very confusing issue and uh, one in which uh, the services provided by the United Nations and other international institutions are extremely slow, extremely cumbersome, and of course the, it is the migrants slash refugees who are suffering from this difficulty in defining who they are. Well, let's, let's, let's try and unpick this a bit because you're right, it is complicated. So I think Emma was right to say you need to distinguish between refugees and migrants. You're right to say that that distinction isn't always easy to make. Um, but for the sake of trying to sort of like pick it through one bit at a time, let's focus for a moment on those, the issue of refugees. And um, Emily, I mean, you're right, the language is, has changed around this. People are unwilling to use it. In, in Britain, the term refugee is hardly ever used now, and in its place has come this word asylum seeker, which has completely different connotations. I don't know if it's the same here. The problem with asylum seeker is it's often prefixed by the word bogus, bogus asylum seeker. So even now you say asylum seeker, in the back of people's head, there's the echo of bogus. So asylum seeker is a term which always carries with it a attitude of suspicion towards that person seeking asylum, rather than the presumption that they are a refugee, whereas refugee is a word which gives benefit of the doubt to, to the person, you know, refugee until proven otherwise. So the, the shift in language suggests that there is this real change, whereas at one point it seemed that a, accepting refugees was something that, of course, a decent civilized society did, and now it seems questionable. So if we put aside for a moment the difficulties of distinguishing between refugees and economic migrants, and we just think of the issue of refugees in itself, what, what do any of you have to say about why it is that it has become such a problematic thing? And, and are we managing the issue of refugees? Are we managing refugees in the right way? Is, are we doing something wrong which has helped to create this atmosphere of negativity towards refugees? Sean Christophe? Well, I think we must refer to the number. This is very important to keep in mind the scale of the phenomenon because I react maybe as a European uh, because we are directly concerned by this crisis. And it reminded me uh, a story that uh, I don't know whether it's true or not, but it is said that President Carter in the past once was uh, had, having a, a, a visit in China in, in, in time of Deng Xiaoping, you know, and he wanted to raise the problem of human rights uh, because at that time in Hong Kong there were uh, refugees, enfin, asylum seekers who were passing by the, the border and arriving in Hong Kong, and, uh, and China wanted. Uh, Hong Kong was sending back these, these people to China and they were very badly treated. So Carter spoke to about these problems of human rights to Deng Xiaoping and Deng Xiaoping had this answer, he said, no problem, how millions do you want? How many millions of them do you want? You know. So they stopped the discussion. How many millions do you want? This is the question. When you think that in Austria, for instance, today, the number of, of asylum seekers last year exceeded the number of births in the country. 
it's a, it's a matter of survival for our countries also. I mean, to help people, it's, it's absolutely necessary, but to be in conditions to do it, you must have a country which stands up, you know, and, and, and is, in, 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 is not uh, destroyed by the phenomenon. So the question is really to keep in mind this scale, not only referring to the Middle East, because the Middle East is a, is, is, it's a terrible problem, but it's a problem that can be solved in terms of scale, because even if uh, there are so many ref 100,000 refugees from Syria, you can handle it. But refer to Africa, think to Africa, Think to Africa, think to Libya, think to what is, prepared, is preparing in Libya. The trafficker, the, the, the people who traffic, who make the traffic of human beings, because th this, is, this is the reality. These people don't come by themselves, they come through networks of, of traffickers in, who are the same that we are uh, fighting because the ISIS group is directly involved in this traffic. In Libya today, there are uh, highways of, of uh, migration which are organized. They are waiting for the spring. Spring is now because the sea is, is more calm and you can cross. And we have in front of us one billion people, a continent with one billion people. I lived in Senegal and I know what I'm speaking about. When you talk to any youth in this country, in these countries, they want to go away because there are no jobs, because there are no perspective for them in their countries. And they want to come to Europe or, or United States. They even want to come to, to England. So they're really desperate. <laughs> and, so, and, and this, this, uh, this pressure is, is terrible. So, uh, I think you, you must keep in mind this problem with this, this scale of the phenomenon. And I think the only position which is reasonable and human is, it's not easy, of course, but to keep making a difference between the individual situation of those who are really prosecuted, that we must continue to help and, and accept in, in, uh, as refugee, as real refugee, and to stop the migration of the others, which we cannot, because, you know, accept people doesn't mean you open the border, they, they come, no. Accept people, it means giving, giving them a place to live, giving them a job, giving them a future, you know, and this can be only done, to my eyes, for refugees and not for the huge amount of migration that is prepared. Well, um, you'll see what's coming in a sec, but one of the things I'd like to get perhaps a response to on that is to what extent you think it's true that simply, you know, things have changed. So, you know, I remember going back in Vietnamese boat people, the Ugandan Asians, times where Britain was very welcoming towards um, these waves of refugees and you're saying actually the thing is that the scale has changed it's different now it's less manageable and i suppose i'm interested first of whether you agree that's true but if so yeah what, what are the underlying causes for that why is it such a why has it increased so much 
uh, now? Why has it become unmanageable? Or, or why are we just managing it in the wrong way? And you'll see then, Emma. So. Well, I want to come in and just, first of all, comment on uh, your determination that this Syrian refugee problem is relatively solvable. Relatively. Uh, we're talking 12 million refugees, about half external, half internal. That's half the population of the country. They have no homes to go back to. Bashar Assad, who is responsible, as, as Emma noted, for the deaths of, what, 400,000 already at least, some of them by gas warfare, has also destroyed their homes. So they have nowhere to go back to. This problem will be with us in the Middle East and to the extent it overflows into Europe and Europe for decades to come. And with all due respect to Africa, I think this overshadows it. And, and I think the world has not yet come to terms with the need for some sort of Marshall Plan, if you like, uh, uh, to deal with this in the course of the coming decades. If I may, I'd like to go into the issue of distinguishing between a refugee and a labor migrant. Uh, I mentioned that in Israel we have a migration from uh, Sudan and Eritrea via Egypt. Uh, the Sudanese are from Darfur, and some of you may remember, it's no longer particularly in the news, but it, 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 the, the, the Sudanese regime's attacks on Darfurians continue to this day. And I, a, a few years ago, contacted some of the Darfurian refugees slash migrants uh, in Israel to try to establish what, what had, had brought them there. Uh, and particularly why it seemed so difficult for the government and the United Nations to determine what they are. Uh, so I talked to these refugees, almost all male, and everyone told exactly the same story. The Janjaweed militia sponsored by the government uh, raided my village, they burned our home, they raped my sister, they murdered my mother, I fled to the hills, it took me months to walk to Darfur and from there to get to Cairo and from there to try to walk across the desert into Israel. Now you hear the exact same story from every one and it is entirely possible that this is exactly what happened to each one of them and that it is also totally impossible for any objective observer to decide whether they're all simply passing the same story onto one another, they're labor migrants and this is the best story they can sell, or whether this is really what happened to them. There's no way to determine it, absolutely no way to determine it, and these, these people continue, those who are in Israel, continue to live in, in limbo, precisely for this reason, that it's impossible to determine, to determine whether they're legitimate refugees or not. So, so what's the solution? Hmm? So what's the solution then? What do you do in that situation then? You're saying you want to distinguish between refugees and economic we're migrants or labor thing. migrants. We're doing the wrong thing. I fully acknowledge it. We're, we're talking only about 50,000 Eritreans and Sudanese, and we are in one way or another incarcerating them and trying to in, encourage, encourage them to seek refuge somewhere else. Hmm. For example, to migrate to a third country there are countries in Africa that are prepared in, in exchange for money to accept them. Uh, this is not a humane solution. Uh, there are racist overtones to the way it's being dealt with in Israel, I'm sorry to say, and I'm not particularly proud of it. Uh, 
but th this is, and this is a very s relatively small number of people when we're talking about a country population of Israel today twice that of New Zealand. So we're talking about a, a negligible number of people. But of course, they're concentrated in southern Tel Aviv, where uh, they are prone to uh, poverty, to crime. Uh, this produces all kinds of socioeconomic protests and problems and so forth. And the, the expedient way the government is dealing with this is, uh, is unnecessarily cruel to my mind. Uh, but the, again, the, these people cannot convincingly make the case that they're refugees. And this is part of the problem. Right, so we're getting a problem. Perhaps we might get some solutions later. But I mean, Emma, how far do you go along with the idea that the sheer numbers involved make this seemingly, well, to what extent does it make it unmanageable, actually? Or, or do you think that we can, despite the scale, if we had sensible policies, we could deal with it in a humane and fair way, which didn't put excessive pressure on host countries? Well, there's a number a number of responses to this. So I'll start with, I'm sorry to focus on the Middle East, but I also think the West has responsibility for why we have all these refugees coming out of the Middle East. So it's not just, gosh, it does relate, it does relate to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So that war changed the balance of power in the region in Iran's favor. It has triggered geopolitical competition between Saudi and Iran, so you've got these proxy wars taking place in the region. So all these different things are going. The effort surely has got to be on trying to end the civil wars in the region, because it's the civil wars in the region that are causing the outflow of refugees. So that has to be a focus of policy, one aspect. The other aspect has to, to deal with the humanitarian consequences of the outflow of refugees. So yes, there, issue, there is an issue with the numbers, but I think we also have to be honest and say it's an issue because they're Muslim. And the idea of Muslim Arabs coming into Europe makes people nervous. There's an association of these refugees with terrorists, I think these are trying to flee the fighting. But there is that association in people's minds. There's a fear that the Islamic State is infiltrating the refugee flows or that the refugees are connected in some way. And that is a, a genuine fear that people in Europe have. The idea that these are not refugees that are going to integrate. These are refugees who want to change the European way of life, all of that. So there are those fears and some of that enables the very populist right-wing parties to fear monger. But I think we have to, you know, be honest that that is one of the reasons why there is this hostility towards these refugees. I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a lot going on there, um, sorting which thing to take up first, because certainly it seems that how you perceive the difference of the people coming into the country seems to affect the attitude towards them. Um, so, and I think it is true. I mean, certainly, again, I, I speak mainly from a European perspective, but there is this idea that Muslims do not integrate in the way that others do. Now, what's interesting about that, of course, is that 
because it seems to be counter evidence as well. It seems to depend upon on where they come from. For example, the American Muslims in North America seem to be much, much more, I don't like the word integration, let's use the word integration, but you know, much more harmoniously, uh, harmonious with their fellow citizens than um, the uh, you know, survey suggests in terms of like satisfaction, identification with the values and the way in which uh, other nationals view them. There seems to be less of a problem in North America, until recently perhaps, because of the perceptions changing, Muslims than in, in Britain. So there's the question of how much this fear that immigrants will want to change the way of life and will change the way of life, how much that's a kind of an unjustified fear and how much it's actually a legitimate one. Because actually some of the comments we've heard this evening suggest that it's, it's not a kind of a prejudicial view necessarily to have a fear that the culture of the country will be changed significantly by an influx of people. I mean, is, is it legitimate? I mean, perhaps we'll stick with you. Is, is it legitimate to say that however we handle immigration, we want to handle it in such a way that we can preserve the, the way of life of the country, whatever that may be? I mean, you gave the example of the US. And you look at the US, of course, you've got the overall American dream. So that founding belief that anybody can come to America, be American, and that's very much in the DNA. You can say that it's not true, you can't all become whatever, but that is in the DNA that you live in America, you can be an American. But also when you look at the Muslims living in America, the Muslims who migrated to America tend to be ones at the top end of the economic spectrum. So professionals who immigrated. When you look at the immigration patterns in Britain, it was often people from the colonies who came. So it was to come to do the jobs that the Brits didn't want to do. So it's a different economic basis. But I think when you look at the story of the new mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, this is the fantastic immigration story. So his parents from Pakistan, his dad is a bus driver, he grows up in a housing estate, he studies human rights law, and he goes on to become the mayor of Britain with the strongest mandate that any elected official has ever had in the UK. And so his example is a superb example. Even Donald Trump said they'd make an exception for him. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, the, the, but the, 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 the issue is, is tricky here is to what extent, because we can look at it in different ways, and I think people are attracted, again, to perhaps polarized positions, which is one which is to say that if you, do, if you manage things correctly and you do the right things, we'll find that we're all human, we can all live together, we have nothing to fear. At the other extreme, of course, there are people who say, you know, well, you know, you, you, it's just a numbers game almost. You, you can't dilute the culture too much or else you, you lose the essence. Now, the truth's probably somewhere in between as it boringly is on most we things. We focus but... on the bad stories. People always want to show the bad story. And yet you have got hundreds upon hundreds, thousands of really good, positive immigration stories. When you look at, you know, Christmas time, the floods in Britain, and you could see Syrian refugees only just got that they were out there filling the sandbags, helping their local community. You can go all across the country and you can find very positive integration stories. But what, make, what makes it work and what makes it doesn't? And is that something which governments can have control over? Because you're right about the differences. I mean, for example, 
You know, in Britain, a few years ago, there were riots in Bradford. Bradford is a, is a city with um, large ethnic minorities and lots of tensions there. On the other hand, recently, all over the news, all over the world, has been Leicester in Britain, because the, the underdog football team has won the Premier League. And, you know, Leicester is, was the first, I think, the first city in Britain to have a, a majority non-white population. That seems to be a model for different communities getting on. Now, to, to, what, to what extent is that just to do with factors, to do with where the immigrants come from, etc., that you can't control? Or actually, how much control do governments have over how they handle their, their immigrants, refugees, or economic migrants, whatever they might be, such as to lead to a harmonious society? And how much is it just out of their control? Yossi? First... The last word on Donald Trump, if I may. I mean, we, I wish there we, were a last word no, on I mean, Donald we Trump. May, we may see an American president whose ticket for election is xenophobia. Mm. Uh, uh, not it's only not Muslims, happen. Mexicans as well. It's not, he's not going to win. Uh, uh, well, well. <laughs> I'm you, glad you're, you're so confident. to sign off on that, Emma. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, Hillary's vulnerable, but that's not, the, that's not yeah, our issue yeah. tonight. But I, I'm saying he has managed to touch on a xenophobic roots of an amazingly large portion of the American population. So yes, it's a success story. Yes, Muslims are far better integrated in the United States than in many other places. And yet, there's obviously a great... Uh, a, undertow, if you like, of, of resentment uh, uh, there, there as well. Um, if I may refer to the Israeli example, it's, it's obviously quite different. I mean, we are a country of immigration, of Jews from all over the world, uh, and in the course of the past 70 years uh, have grown from uh, 700,000 people to more than 8 million today. Uh, and it's quite fascinating to see which waves of Jewish migrants have uh, been integrated more quickly than others. And the most recent wave is that of the, uh, the Russian-speaking immigrants who came from the former Soviet Union, who were integrated amazingly quickly, uh, intermarrying uh, and climbing the socioeconomic ladder rather successfully because they brought with them a cultural background, uh, including quite a few non-Jews among them who were intermarried with Jewish families and, and migrated because of that, but they came with a, a cultural background that enabled them to succeed. Uh, whereas those, the, the, the Jews from Ethiopia, came from a, a far more backward cultural background uh, in terms of their uh, educational skills. Uh, and this is a much slower story and one uh, with, not, with, with not a few problems of integration, racism, and so on and so forth. You can see it in the Jewish population of Israel where it succeeds or where it succeeds more quickly and uh, where it takes many more generations. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jean-Christophe? Yeah, if I can, uh, I would like to, to, to come a little bit, you know, backward, uh, a bit backward, not, not to to go into this discussion, uh, do we accept, because we, we, we came back to the, to, to the beginning, do we accept all or do we refuse all the, the refugees we are, to some extent, there? 
there are many other ways to help people than to give them, uh, to, 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 to open the border for them. It's, it's, not, it's not like that it works. The Geneva Convention of uh, 51 uh, about refugees uh, defined the, the role uh, of the international community for a person who is threatened in his life for his conviction or his religion, you know, by two things, protection and assistance. This is the two things which must be granted for them. They don't speak about giving them citizenship of another country. This is secondarily. Uh, in the spirit of this convention, which is up till now the only text on which we can work, because it's the only international, internationally agreed text that we have, this convention says when someone is in danger, you must, first of all, protect him and give him assistance. And this can be done in many other ways than to give citizenship. We are trapped in, a, in an alternative which is wrong. I mean, either we take these people, for instance, from Syria, even we give them, either we give them citizenship, either we abandon them. It's, it's, not, the, it's not that. I mean, there are many ways to help them. Uh, the, the, I don't agree with you when you say they will not go back home. I don't think so. I think many of them will go back home. I mean, all these conflicts, and I become I'm old enough. You said they have no homes to go back to. Yeah, I also agree they have nowhere else to go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but uh, inside Syria and Iraq, that you know better than me, probably, but there are many different zones. And for instance, the Kurds have uh, safer areas in which they can stay. And we know that many of these migrants are Kurdish. I mean, though the Kurdish are those who are the less in danger because they have their own militia, their own army, which protect these, these areas and these territories, and they can come back to these territories. And when you get in age, like I do, you know, you have seen so many wars uh, happening and finished. Of course, the Israeli conflict is not, but uh, it's, there are many conflicts that I have seen appearing and disappear. And when you wait a little, uh, I, I'm sure that uh, the Syria situation will not stay as it is. I'm, I'm sure that within a few months or years, these people can come back home. What is our responsibility to take out like Madame Merkel, our dear neighbor, uh, all the skilled people of a country, all the physicians, the engineers, the, the educated people, and to give them citizenship. And who will be developing their country once the peace has come back, you know? So, uh, and I remember, sorry for, for referring to Africa, but uh, since uh, I, I remember that the president uh, in Senegal when I was there, he was saying uh, that he was calling deserters. Deserters, you say that? People who... who yeah. Deserters, yes. Uh, the migrants of his country. He said the Senegalese who doesn't want to stay here and fight for his country is a deserter. He was saying that. So it means that uh, to open the border is not necessarily the, the, the only solution. And I think that for many of these people, 
we can find the possibility to give them protection and assistance in Lebanon, in Turkey, uh, in the surrounding countries, in sort that they wait until the end of the conflict and they can go back to their homes and build their nation once the peace has come back. And the peace will come back, I'm sure. You know, the, the only place where it won't come back, for instance, it's Libya, where we have, because we don't speak about Libya, but the, I, I, I'm insisting for that, because in Libya we have a direct responsibility, because France and England together have decided by any means to murder Gaddafi, who was not a sympathetic man, he was a criminal, he was all what you want, but we have destroyed the power we have destroyed the states and we went away. And we have created a complete chaos, which is today creating big problems in Africa and also in the Mediterranean Sea, because the tomorrow problem of refugees will not be, I insist, the Balkan route, but will be the route uh, through the Mediterranean from Libya. And this is what is going to happen tomorrow. And there we have a responsibility. There we have a huge responsibility because we have created the turmoil, we have created the chaos, we went away. And in this case, we have a responsibility to recreate a state. But when a state is completely collapsed, it's very difficult to recreate it. But Syria, it's a different situation. There are nucleus of power. Syria has collapsed no less than Libya, in my view. And the Kurds, well, you say, yes, they can provide refuge to some of the Arabs who have fled, but they have their own national aspirations now. They're, they want to carve out their own borders and close them in order to have some sort of Kurdish homeland. And we're witnessing in some way with the collapse of, Li of Syria, not Libya, but with the collapse of Syria, we're witnessing the emergence of new borders, new ethnic borders, as a result of all of this chaos. Well, I, want to, I want to pick up like a theme that came out of Jean-Christophe and Emma's comments, which is the one of, I, I guess I'd put it in terms of mistaking or focusing too much on effects and not on their, their causes. And of course, you know, both of you have suggested uh, to a certain extent, please jump in if I misrepresent you at all, that you know, a lot of the answer to this in the long run, at least, or perhaps not such a long run, is improving the conditions in countries themselves. And I think this idea that, you know, people don't, when people do move, it's usually for fairly strong reasons and not trivial ones. Now, I've got, in, in, in Britain, we have this UK Independence Party, which is a sort of uh, anti-immigration party, although it would, claim it, it would claim to have a broader platform than that. Its leader, Nigel Farage, um, accompanied a, a Channel 4 news reporter I think it's to R R Romania, I might have got the country wrong, I'm sorry, an Eastern European country that was due to have its citizens as part of the EU allowed to come to Britain and work. And his party was very much against that because, you know, there are going to be millions of them, etc., etc., etc. And this was like a, you know, bad black comedy, this report he filmed, because he was going around this country, you know, basically trying to find evidence and not finding it. He was saying, there's a great scene, he was talking to these people who lived in you know, really basic housing. You know, they didn't have running water or anything like that. And he said, our country, come to us, we're going to give you a house, we're going to give you benefits, we're going to give you all these things, 
you're going to come, aren't you? And they went, nope. <laughs> you know, this is our country. We love it. And he went and spoke to a load of university students as well. And they were saying, well, you know, you're aspirational young people. You'll want to come. And they say, no, we love our country. We want to stay here and we want to build it. And I think, you know, what this seems to suggest to me, and I, I hope I'm developing something that you said here, is that, you know, people don't just move at the drop of the hat to where they work out they're going to have the highest income. People will generally stay if things are, are good. And, and so if we really want to deal with this in a kind of broad way, we've got to help do what we can to help in those countries, although misplaced intervention causes more problems than the other. But in the other terms of taking eye off the ball, in terms of why there is such a fear of immigrants in lots of countries like Britain, it's very interesting because, you know, you mentioned, obviously, you know, xenophobia and, and Donald Trump. And this is, this is very, I find this a tricky one, right? Because a lot of the time people put down the fears of people in Britain, particularly working class areas of Britain, as, as just a kind of a racism and a xenophobia. And I found that it's actually usually much more complicated than that. There's often misinformation. They often have false ideas about how many jobs will be taken and that housing is just being given to them and so forth. But it seems to me that a lot of the time there are segments of populations in countries like Britain who have been let down by their governments. They're not getting the same share of opportunities as other people. So they've kind of been neglected they're kind of victims within their own country. And therefore, it's very easy for them to think that, you know, their governments have abandoned them and they're given preference to other people. So that's just my personal observation. But I guess the, the question I want to bring out of that is, to what extent do you think the sort of climate of opinion, which has become very hostile to immigration and so forth, is, is, is a consequence of failures in domestic politics in various countries. Yossi. Well, certainly, if we go back to the Trump example, and I, I, I'm a bit more familiar with that than with the British example, uh, it's clearly a failure of domestic policies. Uh, it's clearly, I mean, he's clearly exploiting ignorance uh, and transforming it into a xenophobic a, a ideology, if you like. Uh, uh, and he's making Americans, apparently making Americans, aware that of this vast underclass of people who have been extremely unhappy with their socioeconomic situation and are ripe for the kind, this kind of incitement that Trump does, apparently does so naturally uh, and so facilely in being able to flip his opinion overnight. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he drops the Mexico business and drops the Muslim business the moment it's convenient for him. So it's not, yes, it's not the problem. It's a symptom that he very cleverly exploits, but it's a symptom of genuine socioeconomic ills where the vast underclass of people who have been neglected by their government. Can we come in on that? Or? I think... It's also important to remind ourselves that in previous generations, there's also been this fear of immigrants coming. I mean, in America, there was all this anti the Irish, anti the Catholics, Second World War, anti-Jewish immigration coming. So there's always been that fear of new groups 
coming in. Now we might be just more heightened because of media, social media that brings it to play. But it's also been really interesting to see in the UK, people who came over in the kinder transport. Now speaking out, these were Jewish kids who came unaccompanied to Britain. Among them, I think, are four Nobel Prize winners. I mean, you look at what they became as British citizens, and it's them who are leading the campaigns in the UK to bring in 3,000 unaccompanied kids to the UK. So, you know, we all need to be reminded that we're two or three generations away from our parents, grandparents being refugees. Yours, mine, yours. So we all need to be reminded that we all came from somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Tell us stories. Yeah. Do, do briefly, then I want to begin to bring the audience in, but yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to follow up on what Emma said and just uh, tell a story, the theme of which is that indeed, from generation to generation, this problem continues to exist. Some of you may remember in the course of the past year, uh, watching on the TV news, Syrian refugees and other Syrian refugees, uh, Afghan migrants, whoever they were, uh, at, uh, the, at the railway junction of Seged in Hungary. At one point, CNN and Sky and BBC focused on several thousand stuck in the town of Seged. And I looked at this and I said, my God, my mother fled the province of Galicia in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a place that's today in Ukraine. At the outbreak of World War I in 1914, she was nine years old, and she lived to be 91, and in her 90th year, she, had, she kept reliving her childhood, and she told me the story of being with her brothers and sisters and mother in Seged on their way to Vienna. They were going the opposite direction. The Syrians were trying to go from Hungary into Germany. The, the uh, Galicians were trying to get to Vienna. But she was in the very same train station as a refugee a hundred years earlier. And she remembered it particularly because some kind Hungarian gave her an apple. They were, they were hungry. But it's by way of saying, in, in some ways, there's nothing new here. We're going to see Seged again and again. Okay, so listen, I want to bring some of you in here. So we've got some people with microphones, hopefully, who will be able to find people with hands up. And uh, we want to take contributions, which will be invitations to develop themes, talk more. If I could ask, just whatever you say, please try and keep it brief not to give speeches from the floor because that enables us to hear more from people and also to get people up. I, I see one hand here and I see one hand there first of all. So, um, I do we have a, I believe we have a microphone. It's coming down slowly, is it? Very slowly. Or not at all. Um, I, I, I'm very reluctant to get anyone to sort of shout because I don't think that would um, work. Um, before, before we work out this, sort out this issue with, uh, with microphones, uh, perhaps Jean-Christophe, did you have anything to, to follow up on these last two comments? You've lost it already. <laughs> uh, yeah. I less, I'm less uh, optimistic than you are because uh, the, 
and you are not very optimistic, though. But, um, no, because um, I think there is something new. I, th I do think there is something new. I don't think that, uh, <clears throat> that the story can be summarized saying that there were always being immigrants. And in France, we have heard that, you know, we are also a country made of so many pieces and people coming from all different origins. That's, that's true. But though what we are facing in the moment is really different, I mean, it's a huge change of the population. Within half a century, half a century, the population has completely changed, completely changed. Uh, when I was a child, for instance, in the little town where I was uh, living, uh, you could hardly see uh, someone coming from Africa, from an Arabic country. It was, uh, the population was almost totally uh, white, Catholic, uh, native, maybe from different regions, maybe from uh, different origins, but there was a even in this country, which was supposed to be a country of immigrants, there was a, a unity as, as, um, culturally. And also the stories of the <clears throat> Great World War, especially the First World War, have unified this country uh, uh, very, very deeply. My grandfather was brought up by my grand grandparents, and my grandfather was a doctor, and, was, and he was involved in a resistance movement because our town was on the, on the border between the free zone and the, uh, and the occupied zone. Uh, and he was sent to Bochenwald for two years for, for that. And he, he had discovered uh, Europe in the camps, you know, with all the people, the Jews coming from everywhere and, and so on and so forth. That was not our story. And these people uh, have received a, a, a shock these last years. Um, it was the transformation, the, the end of the colonial empire, which have brought to, to the metropole many people coming from Africa and Arabic countries and so, so on and so forth. And I don't agree that um, everything is like before. And I don't agree neither that uh, it's only a problem of integration. Because when you look at the background of the people who were involved in the, in the great massacres that we have uh, uh, that have happened in, in, in Paris recently, they were integrated people. They had good jobs. They are educated people. They were speaking fluent French. They went to school, to university. They had jobs. And though they went to Syria, they came back and they slaughtered 100 people in the street, you know, just be because they were drinking a beer at the, in a terrace, you know. And these people were not marginal. They were not, they, they were deeply integrated. And one of the problems that had the police to find them w was coming from the fact that they were deeply integrated. They were not wearing a beard and uh, dressing uh, like, uh, you know, fundamentalist. no. They were absolutely integrated. So this is a, this is a, a much deeper problem. So we have to solve this problem. That can be solved probably with the time, with the time. But we, in between just a word, we, we have experienced, and my last book uh, was about that. It was about the, the, the war in Bosnia. It was a fiction book, 
The war is in Bosnia 20 years ago, 20 years ago already. When it happened, we didn't realize what was happening. The war was again in Europe. The landscape of the war was not exotic. There was not palm trees and uh, no, no, it was in Europe again. In a country, Yugoslavia, which was a model or which was pretending a model of cohabitation of the different groups, ethnic groups and all. And it was a terrible war in which one neighbor was murdering his, his, his neighbor, you know. Like, uh, so all this weight on, on, on our minds. And that's why, personally, I would like to open the arms, you know, and say we take all the, all the people that we can, you know, of course. But on the other hand, I know that our nations are fragile. I know that they can split, you know, and I know at what extreme violence they can reach, you know, if we uh, don't keep a balance in the decision that we make for, for the population. Thanks for now. Um, we've resolved the microphone issue, so we have this gentleman here, and then afterwards, if we can get a microphone to the lady in the front row. Yeah. wonderful debate we had and what I like to say is uh, I'm from India and when I was five six years old my one of my cousins went to US and it was the American dream so everyone in India wanted to go to US because they saw these uh, advertisements which talked about products and services which can make you happy so the whole world wants to be happy and they want to get these products and services and they want to live that American dream and that's why I want people want to move to these countries, right? But what is happening now lately is that they say, okay, we can bring the products and services to you, stay where you are, you don't have to come here, right? So this is, I think, is the fundamental problem uh, because people, saw, we saw Hollywood movies and we saw uh, men, American men as Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts as woman. You know, everyone is happy, they're having a party, so everyone wants to join the party. Right? This is the core problem. Uh, it is fundamentally based in capitalism. We want to sell our products, we want to sell our services, but we don't want to take the responsibility what you had been debating uh, here. And once we start taking the responsibility of this and we say, okay, we, this is not sustainable. The lifestyle that we live in the West is not sustainable. You can't have it, we, we are also struggling to have it now. We have to find other kind of solutions for this kind of issue. We had some party for 50 odd years, we can't do it anymore, sorry. We had, and, and therefore, then the solutions will come, right? But if there are more people who are dying because of eating fast food, and we are debating about very small issues, these are trivial issues we are debating about. There are very, very serious issues to be debated, but no one talks about it. There are more people who are dying about smoking cigarettes. But there is so much money involved in uh, tobacco industry, people don't want to talk about yeah, yeah. it. Okay. Thank, thank you. Any, any, any response? Sorry, we need to get through the comments. So, um, so I'm, I'm one sentence saying, to finish and question, yeah? Yeah, so I'm, I'm just saying, I think we have to look at a big, much bigger picture and it is not about the porous borders and people want to get into some other country. 
everyone here, everyone here sitting in this room, how many of you will open the doors to your home for the people who are needy, who want to come and live with you? You know, that is the fundamental question. Every country protects their borders. Everyone wants to have what they have. And this is one at one level, but at the other level, you have sold a dream to a lot of people and they want to join the party. Okay. You know? So, so I thanks, just thank you. We need to move on here. Any, uh, any, any response? No? Okay. We'll take that as a contribution and we'll move on. <laughs> there's, no there's no response here. And we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the lady here. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to know um, if a lot of the problems in the Middle East could be solved by giving Palestine some decent borders. And if they can, if that is true, how can we go about doing that? Okay, so actually, the, with a, the, it was mentioned earlier that some of the biggest problems are in places where the borders kind of aren't working or whatever. Um, so the question is, does Palestine need a, a proper border and will that solve a lot of the problems? Is that fair? Yeah? Um, you'll see, I'm afraid. Right, you're going to have to elaborate on the question because I didn't hear it well. I'm sorry. Well, the, the question, okay, so in a nutshell is, is in the Middle East are a lot of the problems caused by the fact that there isn't a Palestine with well-defined, properly regulated borders by its own citizens? Well, Emma earlier mentioned the role of the, or the collapse of the Sykes-Picot borders, which were created about 100 years ago by the colonial powers in the aftermath or toward the end of World War I, and which, among other things, created the borders of uh, uh, the, the British-Palestinian mandate, which is today Israel, West Bank, and, uh, uh, and the Gaza Strip. Now, I, if, if you're asking whether the lack of a solution or lack of a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, is a cause of the greater mayhem in the Middle East from Iraq to Syria to Libya, I would totally disagree with you. And I would say that most Arabs would disagree with you today. They recognize that this, these are indigenous Arab problems. Uh, many causes have been cited. Sykes-Picot, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, without a doubt, made a major contribution as well. I, I go around talking to a variety of Arabs and hear explanations like Barack Obama's 2009 speech in Cairo uh, was understood by the Arab world in such a way that it, it intended to incite to, uh, uh, to revolution. Uh, you hear all kinds of explanations. Very few people in the Middle East point to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as the cause. And this is a, an interesting development in the history of Israeli-Arab relations because we used to be blamed for everything. And we aren't today. And it's an important point. Now, the, having said that, and here I refer you to my most recent book, uh, No End of Conflict, uh, Rethinking Israel-Palestine. Having said that, the absence of a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not so much a greater Middle East problem today. It doesn't even prevent us from dialoguing strategically with our Arab neighbors in view of the perception of threats from Iran, from militant Sunni Islam, militant Shiite Islam, but it is becoming internalized as a very serious strategic threat to Israel's future 
as a Jewish democratic Zionist country. And this is a threat from which Israelis will suffer and Palestinians will suffer. The rest of the Middle East will continue to suffer from totally different issues. Uh, but this is a, becoming internalized as a threat. We're on a slippery slope towards some sort of one-state reality, and it's a very ugly one. Uh, and it's what is perhaps most striking is that this is the greatest strategic security challenge to Israel today, but it's one that the surrounding Middle East increasingly is prepared to ignore. I mean, John Christophe wanted to say something. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to speak about the conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in front of specialists like you are, but just as an indirect consequence, uh, I want to point out the role of um, countries like uh, Qatar, for instance, uh, Saudi Arabia or others, especially Qatar, uh, who use the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as um, a permanent, uh, permanent fire that they, you know, they are, they are I, I, I don't know in English, they blow on, on the souffle sur les braises, you know, they, they blow on the fire. Uh, in the mind of all these young people that I was talking about, the, the French uh, second generation of Arabs coming from uh, Algeria or anywhere, they look at the television, Al Jazeera, uh, Al Arabiya, and all this, and daily, day after day, they receive a message that, you know, they have to revenge an injustice, the Palestinian cause. And uh, whatever is the situation, the real situation, in their mind, it is one of their motivation. I mean, it's they, 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 they witness, for the explain that to the police, all of them who are arrested after these murders and all, they explain that uh, they want to act for justice in the Middle East. And this is one of our problems with this country like Qatar, for instance. We have good relationship with them, excellent. I mean, the football club of Paris is owned by the Emir of Qatar, so we are very proud because before it was, uh, they, they were playing, you know, like, uh, uh, in 12th uh, division, and now they are the first. Uh, so we are very happy, but this is one hand. And on the other hand, the same country finance all these terrorist groups and play a role, uh, plays a terrible role with our youth uh, to, 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 to give them a kind of propaganda, which has probably nothing to see with the reality, but which really shows the which gives them a role to play, and unfortunately, this role is to kill. Yeah. Very interesting point. We, we had, I've, I've been signaled from up here on the balcony. I find this a very interesting, complicated argument in a unique setting. This is a country that a mere thousand years or so ago, <clears throat> in human development, a whisker of a time, had no human beings. Every one of us that lives here is either an immigrant or a refugee or descended from one. We are unique in that regard. More importantly, though, I'd say that here in Auckland, where 60, 70 years ago we were absolutely dominantly European and British for that uh, as a population, 
we are now by about this year less than half European and the other half is made up of Polynesians, Melanesians, Indians, Chinese, Koreans and so on. It has become in that short time the melting pot of any of the cities in the world except maybe Vancouver. In doing so, we seem to have assimilated, on the whole, vast numbers of different ethnic Zs and different cultures and enjoyed that. What we fail, though, to do is to be very good about absorbing new refugees, and that's what we're arguing for now, because we as a country are not doing well about absorbing the vast number of, of new refugees. And that's where the New Zealanders here presently, I hope, would have some more conscience than our Prime Minister and our government. Okay, thank you very much. Um, before, um, before I take response to that, there's a hand up on the, on the upper balcony. I'm not sure anyone is up there with a microphone. So if there isn't somewhere, is there anyone up there with a microphone on the top? If not, could, could you know, to the very, very, no, the very top level. No, that's what I'm after. Not that person, sorry. The, the, I don't know what it's called, the upper balcony. Um, if someone could get up there with a microphone, by the time the next question comes, I'll take it. Otherwise, I'll have to take someone else from down here. Um, do we have a response to the last question? Can yeah. You paraphrase. Yeah. Can you paraphrase Can I the question? Paraphrase? I'm sorry, I've got my own that's, yeah, okay. problems. Well, I mean, actually, there's a broader issue here. The example here is given that Auckland, correct me if my statistics are wrong, you know, we're talking about a country, uh, a city, and a city and a country which was predominantly, very largely, sort of European descent in terms of its population. And in a reasonably short period of time, uh, Auckland has become more than 50% non-European descent. And that seems to be something that's happened rather harmoniously, okay? And, but, but the questioner says, right now, New Zealand's not doing enough to deal with refugees coming in. And I suppose an issue this kind of raises, which I wanted to mention earlier, was it does, you know, it does seem you always get conflicting evidence about how successfully, uh, you know, a population can diversify. Now, it seems to me, my, my perception is that in terms of uh, how comfortable people are with the idea of diversity, it seems to be strongest in cultures that are overtly and proudly diverse, such as America, where you've got the idea of the land of opportunity and the melting point. So ideologically, it's keen on that. Or it's countries where, in fact, they have such, they're so comfortable in their homogeneity that they can preach liberalism. So, you know, the Nordic countries in Europe and the Netherlands have traditionally been extremely liberal. But until very recently, their populations were overwhelmingly, you know, Scandinavian and Dutch. In recent years, they've experienced immigration. There's been a backlash against multiculturalism, and now there are a lot of illiberal forces. So it seems that it's the pace of change seems to be a really key factor. So how quick is the change? And also, how much is the change something that people kind of buy into, I guess? That's uh, the other issue. So, um, so I've kind of supplemented your question with some observations of my own. But do we have any responses to that? You're nodding, Jean-Christophe. No, but I must say that it, the particular condition of, of Europe, European immigration, from the immigration in Europe, 
is that we have received not only foreign population, but also their conflicts. They have imported their conflicts. And uh, maybe that didn't happen for, with the immigration here in, in New Zealand, where you have different communities which were not maybe at war one with the other. You know, Chinese and Indian, there is, well, it's, it's different topics. But for instance, uh, all what we were talking about, especially the Muslim um, who are in, in France mostly, people coming from our former colonies, and they're, they're uh, children of, of immigrants of the first or second generation, they have imported, or not imported, but through this propaganda and all, the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. And the result is that they kill Jews. They kill Jews, they attack uh, synagogues. I mean, th this is the reality of the, f of the fact. I mean, the, these, these big murder that we have to face in, in Europe recently were targeting specific population and among them Jews. And the problem of the new anti-Semitism, it is a, a direct consequence of, of this new population. It's not the old anti-Semitism. Partly it is, but it's not. The most important is not the classical, I should say, old European anti-Semitism. It's a new one in new populations who have come with their conflicts. But not only them. When you take the Kurds, for instance, the Kurds, uh, they, they are, uh, they, they, they are uh, fighting each other in our suburbs uh, between factions of, of, of Kurdistan, between the, the PKK and the others. and. Uh, the, the, Tam the Tamils, for instance, the Tamil from Sri Lanka, have imported their, their, their conflicts. And the Sinhalese population in France, which is quite numerous, uh, has, is racketed by uh, people from the Tiger of, uh, Tamil, uh, of Tamil Nadu. So it means that we uh, are not speaking about population, but about the relationship between these population and the, the conflicts they have brought with them. Thanks so much. Now, um, I've got a countdown clock I'm looking at here, which is ominously turned red. So, um, did we manage to get a microphone up there? We did. In which case, we'll take this as the last one, and please make it brief. I'm sorry to everyone else who couldn't ask. Is it working? Yes. Oh, good. I would like to ask how the world stops violence and warfare being the mechanism for resolving disputes between small clusters of people. It's like family violence. Okay. We need to move against it. How do we do that? So how do we, how do we stop using violence as the solution? So, we, I mean, this, this is your, I mean, Emma, you've had direct experience, you've been involved with Iraq, where we, people from the outside try to use, and this is the kind of thing you have in mind, I take it, military force in order to try and sort out a regional problem with consequences. And the question is, how do we stop that, assuming we want to stop it? Someone might want to speak out against I think, you know, competition is something that which is inherent in human society. Humans compete against each other. And the question is whether that competition can be peaceful, mostly, rather than violent. And I think what enables peaceful competition to take place is the framework of the state, which goes back to the issues of borders. Our whole international system is based on this nation state. 
And when you look at countries that we have been talking about, what led to the violence as such has been the collapse of the state, whether it was Libya, Yemen, Syria, or Iraq, when the state collapsed, the inherent human competition then became violent. And so it's how do we strengthen our systems of governance, not authoritarian oppressive regimes, but inclusive, capable regimes that represent their peoples and provide service to their peoples. Very brief. Very briefly, I want to link that to the previous questioner, uh, uh, noting the New Zealand example. And of course, it is quite unique because, as has been mentioned, New Zealand doesn't border on any state whatsoever, uh, to say nothing of a conflicted state that is overflowing. Uh, but uh, here is a challenge. You are a success story. You are on the UN Security Council. There is a huge refugee problem generated by the conflicts in the Middle East and Africa. And thus far, I have not encountered any really profound international initiative to create some sort of new Marshall Plan type mechanism to begin to deal with this. And it's a mechanism that's going to have to work for decades to come. Perhaps this is, a, a, this is an area where New Zealand could play a unique role using its current international position uh, in order to do something which many other countries find it very difficult to do. So the kind of Marshall Plan kind of, yeah. The, the kind of Marshall Plan type initiative you're talking about is to help rebuild uh, s s these cultures which are fragmented? We're talking about tens of millions of refugees. Some of them need their homes rebuilt. Some of them have to be absorbed by other countries. Some of them eventually have to be returned to their countries of origin. Uh, there are huge a, a migration problems on the Mediterranean that have been mentioned. There, is, there are all kinds of European initiatives. There's the Red Cross, there's the UN, but no one has tried to bring this all together into, and, and indeed to the extent that these problems are, as you said, are unique, are different. Uh, uh, a, then we need a unique and different mechanism, and I'm merely pointing out that you are a member of the Security Council for at least till the end of 2016. You are unique. Let's see you do something about it. Okay. All right. Um, very, very briefly, finally, I was going to ask to be a bit more positive about you know, what could be suggested to to try and make it more likely that perhaps in 10 years' time, the borders debate isn't the hottest issue on the table. That's your proposal. Emma, Jean-Christophe, just a very brief thing. What do you think is the single thing we could do to most help turn down the temperature on this? Uh, well, uh, I will go in the same direction. I think um, the different nations of the world cannot only say, you have a problem in Europe, we, we can give you a moral lesson and tell you what to do or not to do. We must, you, you must and you can help to solve this problem because we are alone in front of the, of the problem for the moment. Uh, some countries like Italy are in the forefront of the problem because they are the, the, the first land 
on which uh, arrive the, the, the migrants. But uh, soon after, they come to France, they come to Germany, they come to the other countries of Europe. But what about the rest of the world? What about the rest of the world? And if really you think, which I don't, that the problem is, or the solution is to take them, to give them a citizenship, uh, I think it's, it's not the only solution, but for some people it is, you know, you know what to do yeah. after this debate. <laughs> and you knew before, probably. I think we need to reinvest in the international architecture. The current international architecture was established after the Second World War. It is fraying. So we need a reinvestment to think what is the sort of world that we want to live in and what are the responsibilities of each country to help create that world. Thank you very much indeed. Well, listen. Um, it, it, it's, um, it's been a privilege for me to be on the stage and, and sort of hear this discussion, a really informed one. I mean, so often now, you know, the level of debate on this subject doesn't rise much above, above a Trump rally. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, there is um, literally a million miles almost between, <laughs> between us and the Trump rally here. Um, so afterwards, at, leaving the exit at the back here, there's a bookstall. All their books are going to be available, and they'll be there to sign them, perhaps even answer a question that you haven't had a chance to put today. Um, all it leaves me to do is thank you very much for coming and being a wonderful audience, and to thank Yossi Alpha, Jean-Christophe Ruffin, and Emma Skye. Thank you. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.